We've been in Ephesians at Trinity Church in Salisbury, and I thought I would bring you to these verses, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. If you have a Bible, it's going to be great to keep that open. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to enlighten our hearts this morning, that we might know you better. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What do I need to know? That's a question I want you to think about. What do I need to know? It's a question that we often find ourselves asking. Uh, we have a new job. We want to get trained. What do I need to know? Um, we've got a new gadget. We want to use it. What do I need to know? We've started a new hobby. We want to get good at it. What do I need to know? We've arrived in a new city, country, culture, church. We want to settle. What do I need to know? There are many contexts in which we ask that question. What do I need to know? And when you think about it in our particular time in history, this question feels especially complicated because there is so much that we could know. Um, and perhaps there's so much we feel we ought to know. In our digital age, there is just so much information out there. Um, we want to know something, well, we can Google it. You can know it. Uh, with a smartphone in your pockets, you and I, we have access to a bottomless pit of information. And in some ways, that's incredibly convenient. In other ways, pretty overwhelming. Uh, one writer put it like this, we live with a digital tsunami where it's easy to be drowned in the waves of data. What do I need to know? And if we're Christians here this morning, the issue gets even more complicated. Um, if we have a heart for the Lord and his kingdom, there'll be many things that we want to think about and know about. We want to think about contextualization, how to reach the next generation for Jesus, growth, how to make disciples, politics, how to engage with it, our times, how to understand them, ethics, what are we to make of the ever-changing moral demands of our society, uh, the needy, how to help them, theology, what to believe, the latest teaching, what to make of it, leadership, how to cultivate it, the world, how to reach it, our own lives, how should we make the most of them? There are so many things that we need to know about. And if you ask the experts, well, there are must-read books and silver bullets and conferences and podcasts and latest ideas and people to follow. It can feel quite overwhelming. What do I need to know? But if you take a step back from all this, perhaps there is a better question that we could ask. What do I most need to know? What do I really need to know? Today we come to Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians, and it is a prayer that they might know something, a prayer for knowledge. And as Paul prays, he reveals his perspective on what believers most need to know. And perhaps surprisingly, it's not something new. In chapter 1, so far, Paul has praised the Father for granting Christians every spiritual blessing in Christ. And following this praise comes this prayer. And the prayer is that we might see more clearly and grasp more deeply all that we have 
in Christ. In other words, that we might know God better. And that is what you and I most need to know today. Verse 15, Paul explains he's been praying for these Ephesians. Now, ever since he heard about their faith and love, these two key fruits of any Christian, he has been praying for them. He prays to the glorious Father, that is the one who abounds in giving good gifts. And he prays that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that they don't have the spirit already. Verse 14, he says they have been sealed with the spirit. Every Christian has the spirit by definition. No, what it means is they need more of his grace if they're going to know more of God. In fact, what they need, verse 18, is the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened. Now that is very significant. To know God, you need God. Uh, the knowledge of God is a matter of the heart. Their eyes, the eyes of their hearts need to be enlightened. That is, it's a matter of the whole person, not just the thought, the mind, the intellect, knowing information about God, but the heart refers to the will and the desires. It is about an attitude towards God. To know God, we need an enlightened heart, a heart which has a hunger for God, a humility before God. We need God to open the eyes of our hearts, to foster in us a deep desire to know God and an openness to hear from God. Of course, if we are Christians, then we do by default know God. And yet none of us knows God as we ought to know him or as we could know him. Um, it was the late theologian Jim Packer who said evangelical minds are 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep, which wasn't really a compliment. Um, he's saying our Christianity is so often skin deep and shallow. Christians are often marked by activism, being busy doing things for God. And that's no bad thing, it makes sense. We have a mission. But if our Christianity is primarily about being busy for God, we may actually find we have forgotten God. And Paul knows that what the Ephesian Christians needed more than anything else was to know God better. And doubtless that is true for us as well. Now, what is it that Paul especially wants these Christians to know? Well, we're going to see three things that we need to know. Here's the first. That God has called us to a great hope. That's the first thing we need to know, that God has called us to a great hope. I don't know if you saw the Star Wars spin-off a number of years ago, uh, Rogue One. The film is about a group of unlikely heroes who steal plans which reveal an inbuilt vulnerability to the Death Star, now the Empire's dangerous super weapon. Now, by the end of the film, it looks like everything is lost. The Empire has been hounding the rebels. Most of the characters have been killed. Uh, the Empire seems to have won as Darth Vader, the, the menace, boards the rebel command ship, uh, breathing heavily, as he likes to do, to recapture the plans. But then, in the nick of time, 
without a moment to lose, a smaller spaceship dramatically escapes with the plans on board. The plans are then handed to a rebel officer who then hands them to Princess Leah. And as he hands over this information, he says to her, Your Highness, uh, the transmission we've received, what is it they've sent us? And she answers with the last word of the film, hope. And that's how it ends. Hope. There is hope yet of good things to come, that evil will one day be destroyed. And it's a powerful ending because hope is powerful. We need hope. We thrive off hope. We live for hope. And yet the Bible makes it very clear, for those who don't know God, there is no hope. No real hope, no ultimate hope. In chapter 2, Paul will describe unbelievers as those without hope and without God. If you don't know God, you don't really have hope. No God, no hope. But no God, no hope. Now that's going to be on the screen for those who didn't quite get that, but it's easier to see. There is an intim intimate connection between God and hope. Now, right at the very start of the Bible, as soon as sin enters the world, God announces hope, the hope that one day he is going to put things right. He will fix this broken world. He will deal with sin. He will heal our sorrows. He will bind up our broken hearts. And the hope, as Paul describes it in chapter 1, is that one day all things will be brought under the rule of Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus will return in glory and we shall see him and we shall be like him. You see, if you read the New Testament, the, the second part of the Bible, you just cannot miss that it is constantly pushing us, pointing us, prodding us towards this hope. It is a future-orientated book. Utopia is not for now. Our hope is in the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the appearing of his glory. And that is what we need to know. That God has called us to a great hope. Now, of course, we use this, this word hope often in a, in a pretty mundane way. Now, when we arrived in Salisbury in the autumn, particularly in November, it, it just rained. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained. I, I was beginning to think Salisbury is a cursed place. It just, it just rains. I was so relieved when I realized that no, it's actually just raining everywhere. It's not just Salisbury. Uh, but I would, I would get up each day and think, I just hope it's not going to rain. I've had enough. But that kind of hope is just not Christian hope. It's not vague, wishful thinking. No, we're talking about a hope that God has called us to. This is different. This is God's hope. And it's God's work. It's God's purpose. It's God's call. Even before creation, this was the goal for God to save a people for himself. Uh, the new creation is not plan B, it's plan A. We are just living in the introduction, the foreword, the preface, the pilot scheme, the shadowlands. As Paul puts it, God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will 
to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In other words, to bring about this hope. And so what God calls us to, it, this hope is guaranteed, certain, rock solid, sure, safe and secure. And that is hugely significant for us today. There are not many certainties in our world. Really, there are not many. Tomorrow could be the end for you and for me. Or it could be the beginning of the end. The diagnosis might well come. House prices might plummet. There could be another global pandemic, a spreading war in Europe, a nuclear disaster. We could lose everything. Anything could happen. Nothing is certain. And you might say, Pete, that's just very depressing. But not for the Christian. Because the Christian is told that we have a hope that God has called us to that is beyond and better than anything in this passing world. And my need and your need is to know this hope. To know that it is real and substantial. It's not vague and uncertain. It's like the spring. It's inevitable. It's coming. Those snowdrops have come. Can't you see? The spring is coming. And we need to know that. It's what we really and most need to know. What difference would it make to know this hope better? More contentment, more joy, more peace, more generosity, more love, less anxiety, less fear, less despair, less sin, less worldliness. It would be good for us to fix our eyes on this hope, on this unseen and eternal hope. If you're a Christian, do you know the hope to which God has called you? Is your heart fixed on the hope to which God has called you? Does that shape your life? If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me ask you, what is your hope? Where is your hope? And do you want this hope? Because this is a hope that God calls any and every person to receive. It's a hope that is found in Jesus and is offered to you. Jesus died on the cross for our sins that we might come back to God and have this hope. Do you want this hope? So first thing we need to know that God has called us to a great hope. Second, that we are God's inheritance. Paul uses this word inheritance. Now what is he talking about? It may feel like Paul is making the same point here. That we need to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. It, it might feel like he's talking about the hope of heaven. Now, Paul has used this language of inheritance in verse 14 in, in that way. It is what God gives to his people. But I think he's making a different point here because the inheritance is described as the inheritance in his holy people. That is, it's not the heaven that is the inheritance for God's people, but it's God's people who are the inheritance in heaven. 
And the Old Testament, Israel was described in this way as God's inheritance, Deuteronomy 4. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance, as you now are. Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. And that seems to be what Paul is saying here about the church. We, we are the inheritance of God. We are his glorious inheritance, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, it's not that we, in and of ourselves, have any great value, but that God has placed a great value upon us. He has marked us out as his in Christ. He has assigned us to be people of great worth, to be his very own people, his own inheritance. The church is the riches of God's glorious inheritance. In ancient Rome, AD 258, the emperor Valerian called an edict for the leaders of the churches to be rounded up and killed. Now, a particular deacon of one church in Rome, a man named Lawrence, was told, if the church gave over its treasures, the edict would pass. The leaders would live. And so this man, Lawrence, agreed to give Rome the church's treasures. He asked for three days to round it all up. Three days later, he arrives at court with a group of people from the church, the sick, the elderly, the widowed, the poor, the orphaned, but with no money. And when the magistrate realized this, there was no money, he was incensed, and he demanded an explanation from Lawrence. And Lawrence said, sir, I have brought you what you asked for, the treasures of the church. Now that story may, may be apocryphal, but it makes a powerful point, and it is true in God's eyes. God has marked us out as precious to him. We are the riches of his inheritance, and God will make us what he has declared us to be. One day, he will present us as a perfect bride for Jesus, without stain or blemish or wrinkle. There's a lot of talk in our society about self-esteem. The suggestion of many is that our problem is that we lack self-esteem. If only we thought more of ourselves, we would flourish. It doesn't take much to, to see that's a bit dubious. And part of the problem for us is that as we look in, if we're honest, there's much to actually to lament, much to regret, much to depress. But where the Christian looks inside and doesn't feel of much value, we can say a couple of important things. One, God still loves me. And he loves me because he loves me. And I just need to accept that. Two, God hasn't finished his work yet in me. He has chosen us, redeemed us, sealed us, but not yet glorified us. There is a lot of work still to do, and he's committed to it. Three, God is looking forward to my coming. We are God's inheritance. 
He's not disappointed in us. He's not regretful that he saved us. He is delighted in us. And that is what we need to know, that we are God's. And he has placed a price tag on us. We could not be of more worth in his sight. He takes great pleasure in us. He is looking forward to having us with him. What difference would knowing that make? Well, it will lift our heads. It will keep us from despair. It will bring a deep-rooted assurance, a wonderful joy and confidence and security. I am God's. That is remarkable. I am God's. Do you want to know your worth in God's sight? We are God's inheritance. That's the second thing we need to know. Here's the third. That God's power is at work in us. So Paul then prays the Christians would know the power of God at work in them. Not just hope, not just inheritance, but God's power. But not just power. Did you notice his incomparably great power, the unrivaled, unmatchable, unbeatable power of God at work in us Christians. Now, Paul says that this same power that raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection, is, um, is at work in us. Resurrection, raising him from the dead, but then also seating him at God's right hand, ascension and coronation. Now, we are used to seeing many powerful people in the world. Think of political leaders with great power, Joe Biden, President Xi, Kim Jong-un, and so on. Now, we are also um, aware of great military leaders with great power in the past, people who reigned over many, many places, Napoleon Bonaparte, Alexander the Great. And yet, in every case, whichever powerful person we think of, it is always a finite, limited power that is exerted. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Statues rise, statues fall. And however much power anyone has, it, it never lasts. The grim reaper always wins. But God has shown his incomparable power by opening up the gates of death. By binding the arms of death. By nullifying the might of death. And he raised Jesus to live... And he also raised him to rule, which means, verse 21, Jesus is above all. Verse 22, Jesus is over all. So that all other powers are subordinate to Jesus, whether spiritual, physical, political, demonic, social, or whatever. They are all always lesser than Jesus and under Jesus. They are his footstool. He is the head. And then, did you notice, Paul says the most remarkable thing. Verse 21, he says, Jesus is the head over everything for, for the church. So the particular purpose of the rule and reign of Jesus, which has broken into the now, but will be fully revealed in the future, is for the sake of the church. Jesus reigns over all for the sake of his beloved people. His power is specifically exercised for the sake of the people that he loves. Jesus is Lord of all that he might govern all for the sake of the church. 
that he might protect her, build her, grow her, nurture her, strengthen her, beautify her. The church. The church, he then says, is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, that language is a bit complicated. But what is clear is that we are seeing here an intimate connection, a deep connection, a profound connection between Jesus and his church. Now, when Paul, who is writing here, was Saul in his pre-Christian days, um, you may well remember he met Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. And he was going there to persecute and imprison and kill Christians. He was attacking the church of Jesus. And he met Jesus, the head of the church. And remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute the church? Except he didn't, did he? He said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Because the church is the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. We are his fullness. Do you see this connection? And I think this idea of him, uh, us being his fullness, means he is present with us and he rules over us. And so the power of God, the incomparable power of God, is at work in the church. And that is what we need to know. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, Paul's hearers in Ephesus and the surrounding area were highly conscious of the supernatural powers at work in the world. In Ephesus, there was this great big temple of Diana or Artemis. There were workers of magic, the occult, the demonic. These people were well aware of the power of evil at work in the world, and they needed to know that Jesus is Lord. Forget what anyone says. Jesus is Lord. doesn't matter how powerful other powers are. Jesus is Lord. And that means no one can touch the church. And though they might try through persecution and opposition and slander and heresy and false teaching and threats and force and divisive behavior, they will not get very far. They will lose every time because you cannot take on Jesus and win. Now for us today, we are not so obviously aware of the supernatural, or we may not be, and yet there are many reasons to be afraid. Our culture is not growing in its love for Christians. The church faces huge pressures. Pressures from without, pressures from within. We Christians are weak and vulnerable. There is a lion prowling around, roaming, wanting to devour the devil. If we look at other countries elsewhere, it's, it's just completely obvious. Christianity is the most persecuted religion of all. If we look back, it has been completely normal in this country to be persecuted for being Christian. The great John Bunyan, who wrote, who wrote The Great Pilgrim's Progress, wrote it from prison. I used to live in Oxford, where there is a plaque on the wall on, on Broad Street remembering the martyrs, those who were burnt at the stake by the Queen for their allegiance to Jesus. The church is, has been, will be persecuted, ravaged, attacked, driven out. 
And it's easy to think there isn't much power. But this is what we need to know. The power of God is effective in the world for the sake of the church. And there'll be many times um, where what Jesus ordains and permits doesn't make much sense to us. Paul is writing this from prison and his readers are discouraged by that. But every time Satan throws dirt at the church, God uses that for good. He turns evil into good for the sake of his people, his body, the church. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid. Jesus himself taught, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a series of books written on church history called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. And that is a very good title. For 2,000 years, the church on earth has survived, flourished, and spread incomprehensibly, supernaturally, wonderfully. You cannot win against the body of Christ. Jesus is building his church, and if we are Christians, we are safe. And that is what we need to know, that God's power is at work in us. What difference will knowing that make? Well, we will take heart. We won't run away. We'll speak out and speak up. We'll stand out and stick out. We'll suffer and we will win. One person summed up the Bible story in just two words like this, Jesus wins. And that is why we can trust him. If we're not Christians here this morning, we need to take Jesus seriously because one day we shall all bow the knee before him. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has defeated death. And either we shall meet him as our friend or we shall meet him as our judge. There are so many things <clears throat> that we could know, and yet this morning we have seen the things that we most need to know. <clears throat> the God has called us to a great hope, that we are in Christ God's inheritance, that God's power is at work in us. And so like Paul is doing for these Christians, we need to pray that God would help us to truly know these things. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you for the glorious realities that we have spoken of this morning, things which we know and yet don't know. Uh, we pray that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better, that we might know that we have a hope that is truly glorious and live for that hope, that we might know that we are God's inheritance and know that we are loved and precious, that we might know that God's power is at work in us, even in our weakness, and that we are safe. Lord, we long to know these things better, that we might be people filled with hope 
and joy and peace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.